Well, I get the privilege of inviting my friend and uh, my right hand, someone I get to do ministry with uh, on a daily and a regular basis, uh, Pastor Brett. He is such an incredible uh, teacher. And you're going to see this. We make jokes about it, actually, on our staff. He doesn't use any notes. We're going, oh, Brett doesn't use any notes. But it's amazing how God uses him and speaks through him. And so I'm, I'm just so honored to have him come. We call him the rock number two because he looks like that. <laughs> oh. And now somehow after that intro, I'm supposed to preach. So, all right, uh, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are the original five from Moses. And then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you've got the first and second. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. So jump over to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're in our series this summer called Miracles. And we're looking at amazing moments where God supernaturally stepped in and did something that we could never do on our own, performed a miracle in both the Old and the New Testament. And we're reminding ourselves that miracles are not something God used to do and then stopped. We actually live with a God who is alive and active and powerful in the moments of our lives, and he still performs miracles in our lives. So as we look at each one of these stories, we're asking ourselves the question, God, what do you want to teach us and what do you want to remind us out of this story? So today we're going to talk about sight. How many of you have perfect vision, 20-20 or better? All right, and Kristen Love, I hate all of you. <laughs> Uh, how many of you, like me, have glasses or contacts? The majority of us. Okay, all right, awesome. So I have negative six in one eye and negative five, five in the other, which basically means if God didn't create contact lenses, I would be absolutely blind and all of you would be a blur of humanity out there. So I have contacts, I've worn them for years, and I'm so thankful for that. If you wear glasses or contacts, you know, all of a sudden the world becomes clear and it's like, wow, it's amazing out there. Well, one morning I woke up and my left eye was swollen shut. And as every good husband does, I looked over at my wife and I went, Babe, was I snoring last night? And you, you know, you kind of, right, went a little too hard maybe. She's like, no. So I ended up getting up. We went to the emergency room because my left eye was swollen shut and I couldn't see big puffy red. And we got in with the doctor and he came in and he was kind of trying to pry my eye open and see what was going on. And he left and about a minute later, he comes back in the room and he goes, I've got a eye doctor in Modesto. I need you to go up right now. And I was thinking, okay, what, what's going on, you know? And he goes, well, you have shingles. Thank you. I felt the same way in the moment. If you don't know, shingles are like the curse from hell, okay? They are, uh, it's a disease that attacks your nerves and it basically sets your body on fire. And for me, it attacked the left side of my face and my eye swelled shut and I was starting to have problems, couldn't see. So I went up to the eye doctor and I said, hey, give me worst case scenario. Like, what are we looking at? And he goes, well, worst case is you lose vision in your left eye. 
Now, as a guy who's played sports my whole life, I was thinking, that is not good. Because if you don't know, the fact that you can see out of both your eyes gives you depth perception. So when you play catch with one eye, you basically get hit by the ball. That's kind of how it works. You're looking for it and it just smacks you. Well, by God's grace, I did not lose my vision. I, I healed up. I still have some nerve damage on the left side of my face. So if you ever see me doing this, it's because I actually feel like I have hair on my face and it's it's messing with my eye. It's the weirdest thing, right? I, I can kind of remember what hair used to be like. And so I honestly feel like sometimes I have some. So if you ever see that, grant a little grace and mercy. Well, I want to talk about sight today because we're going to look at a passage in the scripture that deals not with physical sight, but spiritual sight. And if you go back in Genesis 1 to 3 and you read about God's creation of the world that we live in and of humanity and you read about original sin when it came in, one of the things that we lost was the ability for spiritual sight to literally see and engage with God in the moment. And so we're going to look at a passage of scripture where God opens a young man's eyes to see into the spirit world and performs an incredible miracle in that moment. So grab your copy of God's word, flip over to 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 8. So let me set up for you what's going on. There's a war that is happening between the nation of Israel and the nation of Iran and it's been going on for some time. And so we're literally going to jump into the middle of a conflict. The two main characters are a prophet named Elisha and a king named Ben-Hadad. So look at verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his soldiers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Now basically what he's doing is he's going, this battle's been going on too long. I'm going to take out the king of Israel. And so he's setting a trap for the king of Israel, but God intervenes. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on that place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such a place. Now, how many of you have ever watched uh, any of the FBI series on CBS? Anybody seen those? Okay, if you haven't, it's FBI, FBI International, FBI Most Wanted. Phenomenal shows. Um, they're a little graphic. They're more for an older audience, but amazing shows about the men and women that serve to protect our country. And part of the time, they will use these little bugs that they'll stick in to listen to conversations. You guys familiar with those? Yeah? Okay. So they'll use those to listen in in conversations, and they'll plant them in hotel rooms and homes and offices offices and all that. Well, what's going on in this passage is a supernatural one of those. The king of Aram is speaking privately with his guys, setting up some way to capture the king of Israel. And God, in a miracle, is supernaturally communicating to Elisha exactly what the king was saying. And then he's protecting the king of Israel in the moment so that he doesn't get captured. Now, I want to give you a little context for the names of these two characters because I think it helps us understand a little better. The, the Armenian king, his name is Ben-Hadad, which means the son of thunder or the son of noise. He was named after an Armenian god. The name Elisha means God saves. So the writer has given us a little word play here where there's a battle going on between the small g god of noise and the big g god who saves. And here's what I want you to hear. How many times do you and I pay more attention to the noise than we do to the God who saves us from the noise? You with me, church? 
How many times do you and I pay more attention to the struggle or the problem that is getting our attention than we do to the God that saves and rescues us from the problems and struggles that exist in our life? Now, as we continue on in the story, there's a couple of lessons. So if you've got your notes, I want you to pull those out. They're on your app. They're also available on the website. And we're going to jump into those. So look at verse 11. So, that, so God's been using Elisha to protect the king of Israel. And the king of Aram is getting really aggravated. It says, this enraged the king. And he summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of the officers, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, I want you to write this down on your notes for the first point, okay? Nothing about my life is hidden from God. Nothing about my life is hidden from God. The Bible tells us that God is both all-knowing and all-powerful. So all the moments of your life, no matter whether it's a struggle or a victory, no matter if you're in a good season or a tough season, every single moment of your life, God not only knows all the information about it, God has the power over everything that is going on in your life. So nothing about your life is hidden from God. The scripture tells us that God is all-knowing. That theological word is omniscient. Literally, God knows what is going to happen before it happens in your life. The other word is omnipotent. It means God is all-powerful. So in those moments when you wonder, hey, God, are you paying attention to what is going on? Can you even step into this situation? Or maybe you've screwed up so bad and you go, I don't think even God can get me out of this situation. The Bible tells us that God is not only all-knowing but all-powerful. You'll never face a situation that is more powerful than the God that can save. So the noise will ever overcome the power of God in your life. And what's going on in this passage is that God supernaturally is saving the king from being killed by the other king of Aram. And he's communicating with Elisha, which is making this king absolutely infuriated. So he says to his guys, hey, uh, which one of you is telling the king what's going on? Nope, it's not one of us. It's Elisha. And so I love the way that the king responds in this next passage right here. Look with me at verse 13. He says, go find out where he is. Now, if I'm one of the king's guys and I've just said to him, hey, bud, everything that you say, God communicates to Elisha. King goes, got it. Go find him and capture him. I'm going, dude, he just heard that. Like literally, he, I mean, come on, man. He just, he just heard. So the king gets mad, verse 13. He says, go find out where he is, the king said, and send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Now, I want to get to this town of Dothan later, so circle that little word in there. He's in Dothan, verse 14. Then he sent his horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. Now, that's the biblical way of saying, oh, crap. Okay, I know it sounds way holier when you say, oh my Lord, what shall we do? But basically the guy's looking out going, we are dead. Okay, that's kind of what he's doing. He's going, uh-oh, we are in serious trouble. So look at verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And then catch this. This is an amazing miracle. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And here's what I want you to write down in your notes, okay? Sometimes what I feel is not what is real. Sometimes what I feel is not what is real. Now, the servant in this moment feels trapped, right? He looks out, he sees the army that's come in, and he's going, this is going to go bad. Because he knows that Elisha's been given away the whole plans of the army, and he knows that he's in trouble. So he looks out there, and what he feels in that moment is fear. He feels trapped. He feels like he's got no options. Anybody ever felt that way? You ever feel like life piles up on you and it's one thing after another and all of a sudden you feel trapped in the moment, you've got no options and you're thinking, I think this is going to crush us. You ever been there? That's exactly how he's feeling. Now, please hear this. There's nothing wrong with our feelings. Actually, our feelings are a gift from the Lord so that we can navigate through our lives. So I'm not saying feelings are a bad thing here, but when you and I respond, church, from our feelings instead of from what the scripture says about what is real, about who God is and what he can do in the situation, you and I often respond in the wrong way to a problem. And that's what he did. He goes, oh crap, we're dead. And it's not until Elisha prays and says, God, will you give him the perspective of heaven that he begins to respond in a different way. See, church, if you and I respond from our feelings to the challenges that get in front of us, we, we oftentimes miss what is real in the situation. We're going to do a little walking through the scripture. So grab your copy of God's word. I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Okay, Ephesians is in the New Testament. You've got the book, the Gospels, and you've got Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then you've got Paul's letters to the churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Because what happens a lot of times, you guys, is when I go with my feelings in a struggle, I can think that my conflict is with a person, right? My boss is making my life hard. My coworker is making my life hard. My spouse or my kids or my neighbor or my friend is the person. And what we can do because of our feelings is we respond back to that person and we try to blow that person up so that they don't mess with us anymore. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever done that, but I've done that. Okay, confession is good for the soul. So we try to win against the person if I go with my feelings. But here's what the scripture says is actually real. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not, and read this with me, let's do it together, against flesh and blood. That means your boss is not your enemy. Your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your spouse, your ex-spouse, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, they are not your enemy. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But what I feel is I'm being attacked by a person, so what I do is I respond to the person. And what I need to do is I need to take my feelings and I need to lay them across the grid of Scripture and I need to say, God, where is the problem really? The problem really is a spiritual problem, right? 
What does the scripture say? John 10, 10, Satan's role is to kill, steal, and destroy. The problem is not the person. The problem is a spiritual problem. So sometimes what I feel is not what is real. And I end up arguing with the person instead of saying, God, will you do supernatural work and change that person's heart, which I can't do. And P.S., God, will you change my heart to see this situation through the lens of heaven? So that I respond in love and grace and truth and hope and reconciliation rather than trying to lay that person out. Why? Because the battle is not against flesh and blood. Now, flip over a little bit back a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 3. There are times when what I feel is that I've done something that causes me or causes God to stop loving me. Don't raise your hand, but you ever felt that? I don't think God loves me after what I just what I just did. I failed so bad, God can't love me after this moment. And sometimes we allow Satan into our head to start beating us up because we sinned, we, we walked outside of God's plan, and we start allowing Satan to just beat the snot out of us emotionally because of that, and we go, God doesn't love me out, outside of that. And so if I respond from my feeling of feeling like God can't love me, then I miss what is real and true in the scripture. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, 17. So Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, catch this, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. So Paul, one of the most educated guys of his day, finally runs out of words and goes, I literally cannot describe for you, church, how greatly and deeply and powerfully you're loved by God. You can't run away from God. You can't ever get to the stretch of God's love. You can't hide from God's love. You are literally so loved. There's nowhere, nothing that you can do that you'll ever get outside the love of God. But if I respond from what I feel instead of what the scripture says is real, then I miss the truth of how I respond in the moment. Now, flip over one last time to Romans chapter 8. Romans is right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Romans chapter 8, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing to them about this idea of can we be separated from the love of God? In other words, can something cause us to fall outside the love and grace of God? And here's what he writes. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, present nor future, nor any other powers, height or depth, or nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Please hear this, church. Whenever you and I respond to a place from a crisis, from a place of feeling, and we don't take that feeling and align it over the grid of Scripture, we may be responding from the wrong place. We may allow Satan to sow swords, seeds of discord and uh, fear and hopelessness and despair into our lives because we're basing our decisions on what we feel instead of what is real. And what is real is that you've got an all-powerful God that speaks hope and grace and forgiveness into your life. What is real is you are deeply loved by that God and you'll never step outside of that love. What is real is that God protects and encourages and walks faithfully with you in those moments and that's where you and I need to live. Now, second point that I want you to write in your notes is this, okay? Prayer changes my perspective on crisis. Prayer changes my perspective on crisis. If you look in that account, and you can flip back over to 2 Kings chapter 6 again, what happens, and curiously enough, Elisha, if you look at it, Elisha doesn't actually pray that God would change the situation. 
If that was me, I'd be thinking, God, please get me out of here. I don't know what to do, but other than that, just get me out of here. Elisha doesn't pray any of those things. He doesn't pray for God to change the situation. He prays that his servant's eyes would be open to what is real. So God opens the servant's eyes, and you know what he sees? He sees the, the mountains around this army surrounded by angels. And here's what I want you to catch. You and I before we even walk into a crisis situation, God is there ahead of us with his protection and his coverage for you and I. When you walk into those crisis moments, sometimes you feel like you're alone, you're not. The scripture teaches us that God goes ahead of us, that God protects us, that God covers us with his angels around. That's what happened in this moment. But it's not until Elisha prayed for the servant and said, God, will you open his spiritual eyes to see what is real in that moment that he saw not just the army that had come to kill him, but he saw God's protection surrounding him, how much more powerful God's protection was than the problem, right? Sometimes we need to ask God, church, to open our spiritual eyes so that when we're struggling with the problem in front of us, we can go, God, will you show me the solution that you've already got ahead of me for that particular problem? Now, turn over to Psalm chapter 34. This is the last little bit of walking that I want you to do. Psalm should be in about the middle of your Bible. Psalm 34 is a psalm written by King David after he basically got his rear end handed to him and he just barely escapes with his life. He sits down in a cave. He's hunted by the king of Philistia and the king of Israel at the same time. And he sits down and he writes Psalm 34. So Psalm 34 verse 4 is where we're going to pick up. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. How many of you would like to never have to struggle with fear anymore? Wouldn't that be amazing? He says, he delivered me from all of my fears. In other words, when I went to God, my perspective on the challenge in front of me shifted. It's not that there wasn't a challenge, it's my perspective on that challenge shifted. And then he says, um, those who look to him are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame. And then he calls himself a poor man. He said, this poor man called and the Lord heard. He saved him out of all of his troubles. And then 250 years before the story of Elisha and his servant happened, this is what King David writes. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Sound familiar? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. 250 years before Elisha prays, God, will you open the eyes of my servant? King David writes, the angels encamp around those who fear him. So here's what I want you to hear, church. Whenever you walk into a struggle or a crisis, you and I need to pray, God, will you give us the eyes of heaven to see your power and your protection that's already in place for us. Doesn't mean that we're not gonna struggle. It means that we ask for the perspective of heaven to know that God is faithful and he's faithfully walking us through that moment. Now, there are times, you guys, where exactly like this story in 2 Kings 6, God supernaturally intervenes in the moment and rescues us out of the crisis. There are also times, and I've walked through this in my own life, where I wonder if God's forgotten about me. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand and self-incriminate, but you ever been there? You ever just gone, man, this thing is going on and on forever and it's just getting worse. And God, are you even listening to my prayers? Do you even care about what's going on with my kid, my spouse, my work situation, my finances? 
government decisions? God, are you paying attention to this? And sometimes, church, we can chase the untruth that God is not engaged in what's going on. So I told you to circle that, that place Dothan. The last place Dothan shows up, the only other place in the scripture it shows up is in Genesis chapter 37. And it's around this really cool story of a man named Joseph. Now I'll give you a little background. Genesis 12, God calls out a man named Abraham, starts the nation of Israel from the man named Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God says, I'm going to bless you and all the people through you are going to be a blessing to the entire world. And through Abraham's descendants, Christ came and changed everything. Okay? Now, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has a, has a bunch of kids. He's got 12 boys. Now, how many of you have three or more kids? God bless you. Okay. How many of you have five or more kids? Wow. Rock on. Good for you. Okay. So my bride and I have one and we were able to play zone defense pretty much the whole time. We never had more in, in their court than in our court. But he has 12 boys and they have two different moms. And he treats this son Joseph totally different to how he treats his other boys. And as kids do, they pick up on that, right? Well, his brothers grew to hate him. And as they got older, where we find Dothan, Joseph goes to visit them in Dothan. They're so mad at him that they beat him up and throw him in a dry well. And then they sell him as a slave. And he's taken down to Egypt and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. And then Potiphar's wife, after a little while, thinks Joseph is a hottie and decides to go after him so she can sleep with him. And then when he says no, she lies about it and they throw Joseph's butt in jail. You ever wonder while Joseph's going through that if he goes, God, have you forgotten about me? Because I'm trying to follow you. My brothers beat me up and threw me in a well. Then they sold me as a slave. Then I'm trying to serve and honor you and do my best and I end up being accused of something I didn't do and stuck in jail. Joseph spends years in jail then ultimately comes out of jail as the number two guy in the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh is the only one who's more powerful. And here's the crazy part of the twist. God uses Joseph to save the life of his brothers who threw him in the well. See, here's the thing, church. Sometimes God has a plan that you and I don't know about and we can't see. And it's not that God's abandoned you in the struggle. And please hear this. If you're not being rescued out of the struggle, it's not that God's abandoned you in the struggle. It's that God's working some purpose and plan through your life that just has not yet come to fruition. But we can still live as people who trust the plan of God, even in those moments when we go, I don't get this, God. I don't understand why I'm still in the struggle. Please give me the perspective of heaven. And in Joseph's life, God, God was faithful to him. And every single one of those points brought him to a place that he ultimately rescued not only the lives of his family, but the entire area of that cradle in, in that part of the world. Why? Because God had placed him there ahead of time to do something that no one knew was going to occur. See, prayer changes my perspective and your perspective on the crisis. And so when you and I get into those struggle moments, not only do we have to go, what do I feel and what is real? We have to go, God, will you give me the eyes of heaven on the situation that's in front of me? Now, I want to wrap this up. So flip back over to 2 Kings 6, and we're going to close out the story. So look at verse 18. 
So the enemy came down towards them. Now remember, Elisha's servants, just eyes have been opened. He's seen the hills. He understands what's going on. The enemy comes down towards Elisha, and Elisha prays to the Lord, strike them with blindness. Now, theologians will tell us, even though our English word is blindness, it was more like a deception, so they didn't really see what was going on around them. So God struck them with blindness, and Elisha said, and this is where we know God is a Star Wars fan, okay? This, this is not the road, and this is not the city. These are not the droids you are looking for, okay? So Elisha said, this is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. He led them to Samaria, and after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Basically, he led them into a trap. So you imagine these two armies have been battling each other for years. Both sides has lost a tremendous amount of friends, a lot of other army guys. They've lost a ton of them. Elisha leads them into this trap. And then all of a sudden he says... After entering the city, Elisha says, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. The Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. And then the king of Israel saw them and he asked Elisha, this is fairly typical of a king. Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Now you imagine you've been in a battle with somebody and you've all of a sudden got to take a chance to take the death shot. You take it? You want to take it? He did, Right? This was his chance to end the battle. And instead, Elisha says, verse 22, don't kill them. Would you kill the men you've captured with your own bow or sword? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. Now catch this. This is really important. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Here's what I want you to write down. God brings peace to my struggle. God brings peace to my struggle. Look back all the way through the story with me, right? God is the one that protected the king by speaking to Elisha about where the traps were going to be. God did that. Elisha didn't do that. God is the one who ultimately surrounded the entire city with his angels. Elisha didn't do that. God did that. God's the one that opened the eyes of the servant. God is the one that blinded the Armenian army so they couldn't see. God is the one that ultimately caused them to follow Elisha to Samaria. God is the one that took away the blindness at the end. And God is the one who brought peace to the conflict that the two kings could not bring peace to. Here's what I want you to hear, church. Those, those battles and struggles that are in your life that you can't figure out how to figure out, God can bring peace to those. God's the only one that can bring peace to those. Sometimes no matter how much you and I struggle to find peace, to bring peace into relational conflict, God is the one that brings peace. God's the hero of the story, not Elisha. God's the one that did all of those things. And the same God that performed a miracle that stopped a battle between two countries that both kings couldn't figure out how to win, God can speak that same peace into your struggle and my struggle. The same God that did that can speak peace into your struggle and into my struggle. So that elephant that sits on your chest at night and you can't sleep at night because it's weighing on you so heavy, God can speak peace into that. That relational challenge that you've been struggling with that you can't figure out, that you keep going, I don't, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to fix this, God can bring peace to that. That challenge that you have at work or that challenge financially, God can speak peace to that. When we look at what's going on in our state and some of the decisions that we're being made and it keeps us up at night, God can change the heart of our governor. 
God can change the heart of our leadership. God can speak peace into those moments. See, these miracles that we're talking about over the course of this summer, they're not just miracles out of the Old Testament, New Testament. They're not things God used to do that he no longer does. You and I serve an all-powerful God that still speaks hope and grace and peace and forgiveness and restoration into your life and my life. We just either choose to ignore that or choose to ask for the perspective of heaven so we can see the powerful work of God doing what you and I can't do. And that's what we're invited into. We're reminded that there's nothing about our life that is hidden. We're reminded to pray and ask God to give us a perspective of heaven. And when we do that, we ask God to speak peace into those moments that we can't speak peace into. And that's the challenge that's in front of you and I. Don't live as people without hope. Live as people that have an all-powerful God that still works miraculously in the moments of your life and my life. All right, let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the encouragement of a God that still changes lives. I pray today as we each walk out of here and face the challenges that are in front of us, that you would give us the perspective of heaven. Help us to trust you in those tough moments. Help us to live faithfully and courageously in the way that we need to and encourage our hearts even today. And we pray this in your name, amen. Hey, on your way out, church, don't forget to stop and have a conversation with Rich and Deanna. Table in the back. Blessings, everybody. Have a great week.